Dirty History is produced by Muckraker Media, a nonprofit organization that I co-founded with Jordan Myers of the podcast Plato's Cave and That's BS. Our mission is to inspire lifelong learning by providing open access educational material across new media platforms, similar to the one you're listening to the show on. If you would like to learn more, support our efforts, or join the organization, you can do so at muckrakermedia.org. That said, if you value this show and podcast in general as an educational resource, please consider passing it on to another person. The best way we can spread is by word of mouth. So please subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform or podcatcher you get this show on. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening, please subscribe and review. And with that, on with the show. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. In this episode, I sit down with Michael Aft, co-founder of The New Paper, an employee-owned and editorially independent organization that aims to overcome sensationalism in the media by making straightforward, factual news easy to consume. We discussed a variety of topics, from the concept of a broken news cycle to the role of social media in the democratization of information. I make all the obligatory references to open access as we weigh the pros and cons of the ad model against the subscription model. It was a pleasure to sit down with Michael as we discuss the state of media today. So without further ado, please welcome a friend of the show, Michael Lapp. We're live. Today, I'm sitting down with Michael Ash, the co-founder of The New Paper. I, I know you must have a, an incredibly busy schedule given what you do, so I appreciate you taking some time out of your out of your day to have a conversation. Glad to be here. Appreciate you having us on. Yeah, so I, uh, I've said this before, and I have, I have no problem saying it again, that I think podcasting is a, is a medium that allows people to really have the space, you know, to discuss ideas. And I, I've never seen any other content that could go on for three, four hours at a time and still keep you invested. And given the new paper's mission, I, I think you could sympathize with that. Because let's say today, instead of coming on this show, you were to go on CNN or Fox and you have 20, 30 seconds to give your argument. And then you get a nice four to five minutes to scream over a panel of experts, air quotes the listeners can't see. So, so to, to me, that's not necessarily news. To me, that's like catastrophizing. So before we go any further in this discussion, I just want to know if we can work on the assumption that the news, or at least popular news media, is broken. Is yeah. that fair enough? Yeah, I mean, look, we have a lot of respect for a lot of the media outlets out there and a lot of the major journalism out there. And our kind of notion and the reason we started our business is not that we think that all journalism is broken. You could point to a ton of great journalists at the Times, the Journal, you know, even CNN and Fox News, despite their kind of uh, the stigma around those, um, or I should say the, the reputation around those, but there's a lot of great journalism happening. I think the issue is that for every great story that you read, there's something like what you just described, and that's why the media feels broken. So for a normal consumer like yourself to wake up and feel informed and just read the news, to that I would say, yes, the experience is broken because it's so hard to sift through the volume of content and find the good stuff 
and filter out the bad stuff. So I don't want to say that news in general is broken. There's lots yeah. of great journalism happening. What, what we would agree with is that the experience of consuming news in an efficient way for a normal, busy professional is completely broken, and that's why we exist. Okay, so given that, let's pretend that a portion of my audience has never heard of the new paper. How would you describe it to them? Yeah, super simple. I'd say that we make factual, unbiased news extremely easy to consume. That's our whole thing. We are not investigative re reporting. We are not breaking news the first time you hear it. We are not opinion or conjecture or analysis. We are a way, the new paper is a way to start your day with a common set of facts. If you as a US-based for now consumer mm -hmm. want to understand what's going on in the world, what are the five to 10 most important things, most impactful things for me to know, we give you that. And then we give you access to more content, to more depth, to go deeper if you want to. But the simplest way to describe what we do is by is is making straightforward factual news extremely easy to consume. The way we do that is across a couple of different channels. One is text message, that's our primary channel. And then the second one is email. And I think as we expand into the future, you know, our kind of stated mission is to provide straightforward factual news to the 200 million people in the US who consume news online every day. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? That means being text, email, that also probably means being voice, that mm -hmm. means being maybe an app, you know, we are building an ecosystem of products that delivers the first touch of daily news. But again, to answer your question is just, I would tell your readers that have not heard the new paper that we make straightforward factual news, super, super easy to consume. Now you're not doing like wall to wall 24 seven coverage, like someone's not gonna have their phone blowing up all day with new paper alerts, right? No, and who would want that, right? Yeah, no one would want that. It's broken, right? Like if I go to my phone right now, I. I have so many push notifications mm -hmm. from news apps that are just trash. So yeah. it is once a day. We send you once a day what you need to know. Start your day with the new paper. Don't worry about focusing on news for the rest of the day. And that's a much healthier way to consume the news. Yeah, no, I would, I would totally, I would totally agree with that. So if, so if someone subscribes to the new paper, they're for now either going to get an email or a text message, depending on which one they sign up for. Correct. That's exactly right. We okay. actually started off, so our kind of background, we started off as an email newsletter. That was our entire focus. Mm -hmm. uh, we scaled that up to about 100,000 readers, and then we found that text is a completely untapped channel, um, but it's super convenient, right? Like, think about the volume of email you get every day. I've got work emails, and yeah. blown up by brands, and personal emails, and spam. It's kind of messy, it's kind of frustrating, and it's it kind of anxiety-inducing, right? Mm -hmm. Text messages is, is pure. It's you know, family, it's friends, and it's the new paper. So we decided earlier this year we were going to pivot to focus on text. And the reason for that was, A, it's completely untapped, and B, it's just super lightweight, simple, easy text. Give it a quick read, go on with your day. And the reaction to it so far has been really strong. No, that, that makes total sense. I mean, if I get a, for example, if I get a phone call, my stomach drops. I don't know why. I always get nervous when the phone starts ringing. I'm like, oh, shit, who's calling me? I don't really want to talk right now. And then there's the... And then, like you said, the email, it's like, oh, is this business related? Is this, uh, did my bank statement come back and I have new bills or some shit? No, the text message is very friendly. I, I totally get behind that. So in putting together these news briefings for email or for uh, text message, what, what's the process? How do you go about that? Like, where do you, where do you start? Yeah, I mean, it, I wish I had like a second, <laughs> like, you know, some algorithmically curated 
back end that's you know figuring out the most important stuff based on some metrics but the fact is that's part of what broke the news cycle right mm -hmm. most people get news right now is based on algorithms that are incentivized to drive clicks and not actually the content you need to know for a day so our process is super simple but it's super human based right yeah i wake up my co-founder wake up every morning at 4 30 a.m eastern we read everything we read everything on the left everything on the right we read the primary sources i'm going through like 10Ks and Supreme Court rulings and congressional documents, and we read everything, and we take four or five hours, and then once we figured out, A, what are the most important stories that you need to know today, and then B, what are the actual facts within each story, then we put those together at the end. So we've got a fairly, comp you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it complex, but a fairly strict rubric that we follow, because I think process is super important, especially when you have a human touch, but yeah. there will never be a time when the new paper is not human curated, curated because that is what you have to do in order to achieve this idea of straightforward factual news. You can't trust an algorithm to deliver um, that type of content because none of those companies and none of those algorithms are trained to deliver news in that way. So super human focused, super process focused and super manual, but that's the way we like it. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's one of the main reasons. I was really hoping you were going to say that because that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the show because Dirty History, this podcast, is on a podcast network which is not based on suggested listening through algorithms. Like if someone was to take a short quiz of like what kind of shows they like and their tastes, then we look at that and give them show suggestions based on what they said. It's very human-based. So I think our listeners would really support that. And the way you described it, you and your co-founder wake up and read all the news. Is this is this like a like a South Park deal? Is it just you two doing everything right now? Is because that has to be very stressful. You wake up and you're like, shit, we got to get this thing out by one or twelve thirty, and yeah. we have this many hours to read everything and compile it. Like, is it stressful? Uh, you know, it is it the first time you do it, and once you hit a certain volume, like I think the idea that a hundred thousand people rely on your product to stay informed, that's the stressful part. Like yeah. doing the job. You know, we've got it down to a pretty efficient process. You know, we have very specific guidelines for what we include, what we don't, how we structure things, how we phrase things, kind of where we draw the line between analysis and facts. Um, so that part isn't super stressful, but, you know, I'll go through and triple check every single fact that we include and I'll go through and I'll read the extra financial filing or congressional filing or lawsuit or whatever, because people rely on the new paper. When, when we tell people that they can start their day with a common set of facts, we have mm -hmm. to deliver on that because... If they buy into that, and our customers do, and our readers do, then they are relying on us to stay informed. They're not necessarily going to go check those facts themselves. Um, so that's the stressful part: is just making absolutely sure. Because even in you know really great media sources like the ones I mentioned, a lot of times there's kind of conflated facts and you know opinions masquerading as as factual information. And so we have to be really careful about filtering all that stuff out. And then in terms of team, yeah. So my co-founder and I've got a small army of interns, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, a really investor group, which we, you know, we value a ton. But in terms of full time day to day, uh, yeah, it's my co-founder and I, and we just we kind of do everything <laughs> for the business. So you said you said a hundred thousand. That's about your circulation of how many people read the new paper currently. Yeah, it's a little over that all in between text okay. and email. That's 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 awesome. Um, so you you get up in the morning, four thirty in the morning, and you just start scouring the news, right? And you just, you look and you start putting together the five to ten most impactful stories. How how does that process differ from say more traditional news outlets like Politico or the Washington Post? Aren't there journalists waking up at four thirty in the morning, going through everything and trying to deliver factual news? What sets you apart? Yeah, so there's a few different ways that we think about it. The 
kind of first one is incentive system. So the new paper's stated mission, you know, everything from the first advertisement that you see for a new paper product through the onboarding experience and the day-to-day -day experience is focused on factual news. And my co-founder and I both believe that any organization will act in the way that it's economically motivated to do so. So yes, we feel like we have a moral imperative to deliver facts, but at the same time, if our stated mission is factual news and we don't deliver on that, then we lose customers and we lose revenue. So we have to do what we do. When you look at traditional media, and this does not apply to all traditional media, again, there are really fantastic outlets out there, really fantastic journalists out there, but the traditional model is ad-driven and click-driven. Um, and what that does is sends the wrong incentives through the system. So what happens is you hire more journalists to push out a higher volume of content because the folks who are waking up at 4.30 at a traditional media outlet um, are not the ones who are thinking, all right, how do I curate today's news? They're thinking, how do I break the latest story or what is the hot mm. topic right now? What's getting a lot of buzz? How do I write about that in a way that's interesting that will deliver clicks? And that is not always aligned with whatever the most factual way possible is. Um, so that's you know kind of one way where we differentiate is uh, incentive system. And I think that's probably the most important um, just given that it is our stated goal. The second piece is that you know we're not really beholden to any one ecosystem right now. So yeah. we all provide context and access to more depth, right? So that might be an AP article, that might be Reuters or the Journal or the Times or BBC, mm -hmm. any number of outlets. Um, we're able to kind of sit above any individual media outlet and pick and choose. This is the best possible article, the most factual article for this subject. And if I'm waking up and I'm working for, you know, name your media company, I don't necessarily have the benefit of being able to do that. I'm kind of confined to one ecosystem. Um, so that's kind of how we do it. And then the last piece of that is, I think that a lot of traditional media companies are struggling right now because they have kind of think about the news as an iceberg, right? Mm -hmm. The tip of the iceberg is what we do or the first touch of daily news. Everything below that is the depth, the content, the journalism, the opinions, the analysis. And a lot of journalism outlets have really fantastic kind of bulk of the icebergs, but they really struggle with the tip. And so when folks wake up at 4.30, they're writing opinion pieces, they're doing the analysis, they're doing the in-depth reporting, and that stuff's super important as well, which is why we really view traditional media as a partner to what we do. You know, we couldn't do without what we do without them, but where they struggle is taking all that and combining it into a first touch, and that's what we do. So that's kind of how we differentiate. If you want to go deeper, you can, but very few out there are actually delivering a first touch of daily news, the tip of that iceberg, in a way that's actually super easy to consume. Like you, you as a reader, should be able to, in a non-frustrating way, spend five to 10 minutes catching up on the news, feeling informed for the day, and then getting on with your day. It shouldn't take you a couple hours, and you shouldn't have to go to 15 different news outlets. So that's what we deliver, and that's something that nobody else really does well right now. I'm not sure when I came across the new paper. I think it was about six months ago, or really how I did. But I, I realized that when I did, I told all my friends about it, because it completely changed the way I, I looked at news. I'm like, this this changed the game. However, there was there was a second app, and I'm curious if you've ever heard of it or if you use it. It's called a Ground News. It was pretty interesting. It's it's an app that kind of it aggregates all of these different news stories, and it shows you all the different outlets that reported on it on a scale about they lean left, they read. So they give you all, they give you the bias counter for the different news sites, and then you can click on it and go, it takes you straight to the site, and you know the bias ahead of time. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily your enemy, so to speak, as, as the new paper, because it doesn't seem like you guys are out to replace how we do news. It seems like you're really like a su supplement to how people would get their uh -oh. daily news. You're, you're reliant on the news media as it stands, but you're kind of clearing away all of the muck and extra stuff that we don't really 
that the average person doesn't need. You don't need to hear about a one. You hear about one story, and they just tell you little parts of it for about four hours, and then you it feels like a bigger crisis than it actually is. It's uh, yeah. I mean, I think the way you just described it is probably we should hire you, and that'll be our pitch, right? That's, <laughs> You know, I think that's exactly what we do. And there's, it's so interesting. When we started the, the company, we kicked around the idea of, do we go, because it's kind of two, di two divergent paths, right? The one you described, and I've got a different app that does something similar. The one you described is like, show the left and show the right, mm -hmm. right? Help people understand both sides of a story. Yeah. Um, and then the other path is starting even before that and just say, show people the fact and let them decide for themselves. I think there's a world for both. I think there's a world for traditional media on both the left and the right. I think it's super important. We just chose to go with the with kind of the factual piece because if I want left or right leaning news, I can easily find that yeah. from a variety of outlets. What I can't find is just clear all that noise away and give me the facts. And that's why we started the way we did. No, and I, and I personally I think that's probably more impactful, at least for me as a reader. I can't speak for everyone else. But any anyway, I um what what guards you? Because you were speaking about this a little bit earlier. What what guards you against falling into the main fault with the ad model, like the chasing clicks for monetary support? Because you have to fund this somehow. What's keeping yeah. you from chasing clicks and trying to get people to read a really, you know, popping headline or something like that? Yeah, I mean, really, the first one is making sure that we're incentivized to do so, right? Like, mm -hmm. I trust John and I to follow our moral imperative, you know, to the end. But as we grow as a company, it's important that what we instill in our business from a cultural perspective, from an operating perspective, is completely incentivized to deliver on straightforward factual news for our readers. So the first thing that we've done that, kind of what guards us is saying that we're gonna do it up front and then delivering on it and being forced to. Like we hear from readers like yourself, if we even get the smallest nuance in a way that comes across as biased, then we want to, right? We need that, we need that feedback. The second one is, is just uh, process and structure. So this isn't, you know, two guys just randomly deciding what's going to be the story yeah. that gets covered. Hey, like we go through, you know, a, a series of criteria that allows us to decide really objectively, albeit in a human, in a human based way, but objectively what should be included. Um, and then I'd say the last piece is you describe revenue model. So originally we started with an ad based revenue model and we do still generate ad revenue and we probably will for a long time, but we've actually shifted our focus to include subscription revenue as well. The more that we think about this, the more that we realize that the fix to click-based ad-driven news is by taking the ads out of it for a really reasonable, modest price, call it five bucks a month, right? Mm -hmm. The price of a cup of coffee in a major city. Um, you can access really high quality, straightforward, factual news. And I think for some time, maybe it won't be like, like this forever, but I think for some time into the future, the answer to what we view as a broken part of the news system is paying for news. And it doesn't need to be $30 a month. It doesn't need to be 50. It can be a quarter a day. Um, but we've seen a really strong appetite from folks because that's really the only way to make sure that you trust that your news source is purely focused on the reader. Um, there's other things that we can do. You know, there's us saying it. There's us having a mission statement. There's us waking up and doing it every day. Mm -hmm. But in the day, if our readers are paying us for the news and they're paying us for straightforward news, then we absolutely have to deliver that and advertisers are taken out of the equation. So those are kind of the ways that we balance it. And it'll be it'll be an interesting time over the next 12 months. I think there's a lot of curious things happening to the ad market right now anyway, um, given all the stuff happening with COVID and economic slowdowns. So it's a little bit fortuitous for us to shift that focus, but we've been really pleased with this, the uh, feedback to subscription, to the subscription model so far. And I think as we go forward, that's really where we're gonna place our bet. 
so that <laughs> that that opened me up to like four separate questions. Um, one is, I, I understand the uh, it shouldn't come as a shock that people would pay for news. I mean, we've been doing it. You buy a newspaper. I mean, granted, it was seventy five cents, or but. At the same time, I'm a large proponent of open access, but we'll, we'll get to that whole side of that in a minute. I want to first attack this other thing. Um, a guiding principle of, of this podcast has always been that the act of choosing what I'm going to spend my time talking about reveals a certain bias. It delivers a message. So, so how do you contend with that idea how, that what you choose to talk about and what you choose to focus the briefing on reveals uh, a certain bias? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of lucky in that sense, right? Because we only focus on the five to 10 most important, mm -hmm. most impactful in a given day. Um, it's fairly clear based on coverage, based on volume of people that it impacts, based on who it's coming from or where it's coming from, what those stories are. So every day, do we have eight really high quality stories that absolutely have to be covered? No. And on those days, we try to go for things that are still highly relevant, but potentially interesting things in science or technology, um, you know, we would stay away from like a random political story because that would imply mm -hmm. bias, but we can try to fill with some of those more interesting pieces. Um, but in terms of selection implying bias, I completely agree. And that, that doesn't apply only to stories, right? That also applies to facts within a story. Mm -hmm. I can be factual and at the same time, extraordinarily biased. So you have to kind of watch yourself for that as well. So I agree with you. Um, I think that's another reason that people have a really hard time trusting the first touch of media that they're getting right now. And I think for us, um, you know, one is just focusing on the five to 10 most important stories. So we don't need to fill a whole homepage with 30 different stories. Yeah. Um, and then this piece is just, again, it comes back to process. It comes back to going through, using a rubric, reading whatever Fox News and CNN have to say about a subject before we go to AP and Reuters. Um, and kind of getting a holistic view of each story before mm -hmm. making any determination. The other piece is like a simple gut check actually goes a really long way. So when you force yourself to ask a series of questions when you're curating the news, and one of those questions is, what is the other side of this? Or is, that, is there any bias implied in this? And that's the last check you do. Well, that forces that out a lot. Yeah. And you know, my co-founder and I's political leanings aside, um, that process allows us to really take an objective view and I think having two people here actually helps a lot, right? Where we have kind of a, a check and balance system as we write the news where we are, uh, we have a really, really high bar for that kind of stuff. So I realize I probably sound like a broken record, but it really does come back to process oriented approach um, and, you know, focusing on those five to 10 most impactful stories. Yeah, no, I don't think it sounds like a broken record. It's, it's nice to hear someone say that our process helps us avoid falling down some sort of ideological rabbit hole or something like that. So sure. it, it's it really it's it's funny because it's it's an email or text message newsletter, but at, at the same time it is it seems to me like the most honest transference of print news to the internet, right? Because when a lot of print papers put up their website, they're constantly filling it with news, breaking news. You have the little scrolling thing that tells you something every minute. You guys are just here's the news for the day, right? It's 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 a nice re relief from the twenty four seven wall to wall TV coverage that covers the same story for eight hours. So, how can you then create a reliable accreditation, whether that be in your minds or with your audience? How 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 do 
you know, I, I guess I guess I should take that question back because you kind of already answered it, right? The process kind of is the the way you go about giving the first touch of news. I mean, look, honestly, the only answer is you earn it. Mm-hmm. Why does anybody any any media outlet? Why do some people read Fox News? Some people read the New York Times. Some people read CNN. They trust it, right? Yeah. You have to earn trust over time. You have to build brand over time. We can say that we're going to be factual, but if we don't deliver on that every single morning, mm-hmm. every single week, year then we don't have it. So we've already, you know, we're a young company, but we started to develop that trust and develop that rapport. But the way that we do what you just said is, I mean, yes, process is the way that we actually execute on it. Mm -hmm. But the way that we earn it is building trust over time. That's the only way that we can. Yeah. So you've been discussing a lot about the process of how you select news that you that you and your co-founder have this moral imperative to deliver factual news and that really got me curious about about your background where where did you come from that you ended up here is this venture out of a place of frustration how did how did you end up at the new paper yeah it's such a winding story it's so funny so uh, very much not traditional uh, journalism media backgrounds right so my co-founder and i both started our careers in finance kind of working standard investment bank, Wall Street firms. Um, we both left finance, and then we actually met working at LinkedIn together out in San Francisco. Um, and at LinkedIn, this is like, man, I'm going to make myself feel old here. It was probably back in 2015, give or take. Um, yeah, I was still in college then. Yeah, exactly, right? So um, back in 2015, we kind of started to see the signs of this issue, right? This was going into the 2016 election, but we worked at a you know professional social media company. And you could see that the way that content was being engaged with was shifting away from straightforward factual journalism and toward clickbait sensationalism. Um, you know, just this was right before some of the stuff around Facebook's responsibility in that kind of realm started to come out. And so we were frustrated then um, and didn't do anything, you know, right then, right? So this is back 2015. I left, or I left LinkedIn, I went off to business school, my co-founder left LinkedIn, he went and ran growth at an email newsletter company called The Hustle, very much focused on tech and business news. Um, and then he left The Hustle to go start the new paper because that frustration that we felt kept building. Like we'd have so many conversations among the group of us that was still really good friends from LinkedIn around the state of the media, around the state of the news, around the fact that there was nothing addressing this problem. And the frustration built and built and built over the years. And the problem got worse and worse and worse. And so my co-founder eventually said, I'm going to go fix this. And then he kind of posed the idea of me joining him after I graduated from school mm-hmm. last May. Um, and I said, yes, I jumped at the opportunity because I was so fired up about the same thing. So both of us kind of saw a path to entrepreneurship. You know, we both love this as a business model. But more than anything, we were both incredibly frustrated, incredibly passionate. Like I... You know, I could stand on my soapbox all day, but I think a common set of facts for every single person who reads the news is a imperative for a properly functioning democracy. Like the way people are getting information right now is broken. And the information that people are starting their days with is completely different based on where they're getting it. Um, that is a problem that somebody needs to fix. We want to be that person, but, you know, we're not going to be the only ones. And that's great, too. So uh, we were just kind of fired up about the problem. Neither of us has a journalism background, which I, you know, it has, has proven to be over so far. Yeah. Um, rest came from the news, which allowed us to take an outsider's perspective to it mm-hmm. um, with, you know, still a ton of respect for what's getting put out there. And um, it's been a, a fun ride, but the response so far, people like yourself has been great. Like people are frustrated. People really want straightforward yeah. news. They don't know where to get it. So the new paper is that source. I was thinking about two things while you were talking. Uh, it's interesting how you approached the news, given that you don't have a traditional journalism background. 
and the way I've I've been thinking about the news lately, given that my background is in education, so of course I'm going to think about it this way, is that ultimately I thought the news comes down to an education problem. The reason that we allow so much sensationalism and misinformation to persist is that no one has been given the proper skills to reason or to think critically about what they're reading or to really try to understand bias because our schools simply don't really touch on that. But it seems like you're suggesting an alternative instead of completely changing the uh, school system to make it, you know, easier for the average person to, you know, discriminate between, you know, I don't want to say fake news and real news, but you know, you know what I mean, sensationalism and, and cold hard facts. But you, you kind of take the alternative approach that we shouldn't have to change every single person and how they read the news. We should just change the news to suit the people more, you know, effectively. So, this is the second part that I wanted to get to. I, it's been something that I've kind of been on a crusade on with my last three guests is I've been talking about open access, right? And the reason I really think about open access is because doing a lot of research for the show, I'm always hitting paywalls, right? I can't reach this uh, academic article. I can't reach this science article. And I get very frustrated. And then I wake up in the morning and I'm scrolling through Twitter or I just open up my uh, Google Chrome app and I look through everything Google suggests for me and I click on the news, right? I, this headline seems interesting. And then I can't read the freaking story because it's it's locked for some reason. It's behind, I got to pay $9 or however much it is to get access to the story. And and that, that frustrates me. But it seemed earlier that you were arguing a subscription-based news service can kind of help solve this problem with the ad model. Yeah. But are do you see any concern that it becomes restrictive and then you have no people that are you have people that are just completely uninformed because they aren't paying for the news is there is yeah. there a workaround should there always be a free option is it is it on the impetus of the company to do some outreach to get people free news or where do you stand on open access and news yeah i mean we have this conversation internally a lot right given the two business models that we currently operate i'd honestly pose the question back at you so Knowing what you know about the way that business models are incentivized to drive clicks, mm -hmm. that's what causes sensationalism. You know, clickbait content because so much news is being curated on Facebook or Google News. Um, if not subscription, how do you think you fix that business model? So, I don't think it would be possible to fix it without subscription, and that's the catch twenty two, right? So the way I've tried to do this is. I kind of take the uh, Sam Harris approach. Have you ever listened to any Sam Harris podcast or anything like that? Well, his podcast is behind a paywall. However, he specifically says he releases the first half of the episode for free. And um, at the end of the episode, he says, it's this much to get the Making Sense app. You can listen to all the podcasts. You have access to my meditation sessions, yada, yada, yada. However, if for some reason you are financially unable to do so, send an email to this link and we grant 100% of our requests. I think that would be the best way because if someone can pay for the news and they want good, solid reporting and they trust your site, they'll come to it and they'll pay. But there might be people who are really concerned and can't pay. And if you give them that free option, they'll respect it. And then they'll tell their friends, holy shit, this company, yes, they do charge, but they'll give you free news if you want it. And I feel like it's this natural word of mouth that will create a yeah. lot of excitement about your organization and drive people to it. And right. that's what we've tried to do with yeah. Muckraker. That's the most likely outcome here. Mm -hmm. Like we don't ever want somebody to not be able to consume the new paper because they can't afford it. And while five dollars a month might be the cost of a cup of coffee in a big uh, in a big city, it's big yeah. today. Uh, for some people, that's a lot, right? For some people, yeah. that's a, that's 
number. Um, there's a lot of people who are struggling right now, you know, certainly, especially given the current economic climate. So I think what you just described is the most likely outcome. Um, sending text messages is a lot more expensive than you would realize. Yeah. So we kind of have to charge just to like cover mm -hmm. our operating costs. Um, but I think about, we think about that a lot. And I do think that that is a very realistic scenario where we say, look, can't pay for it, can't pay for it for a couple months, but want to come back, like we'll give you free access. And we, you know, we've done similar things on an ad hoc basis. Mm -hmm. um, folks reached out and asked for similar stuff. Um, we haven't institutionalized it yet, but I could easily see us doing so because I do think that subscription revenue helps to fix that broken incentive system. But that doesn't mean that just because you can't afford $5 a month means you can't get the news. So whether that's much cheaper products in the future or yeah. free access, if you're, you know, kind of financially motivated or a model, I don't know, we, my co-founder's going to kill me for bringing this up because we haven't talked about it, but like a pay what you think is fair model, right? That works for a lot of businesses as well. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of avenues we can go down, but um, I wouldn't say that a paywall will be what stops us from delivering news to 200 million mm. people. And we will always be as creative as possible to bring the news to as many people as we can while staying incentivized to do the right thing, which is factual news. Yeah. yeah. See, we're, we're a little bit luckier with, with Muckraker Media because we're an educational nonprofit. So we're able to apply for grants and stuff to fund a lot of what we do. So that, that definitely helps. That and a subscription. We, we typically avoid ads at any cost because we, I don't know, I just have this thing against ads for some reason. <laughs> but, um, I say that now, but once an advertiser offers me a lot of money, I'll probably take it, right? Because selling out always has a price tag. Where, where, do you, where do you see the new paper in the, well, we kind of already discussed where you see it in the current media landscape. Where would you like to see it in like three years? Where would you like to see the new paper fit in to the media landscape? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? You can either stay tip of the iceberg and be the first touch of daily news and expand horizontally, mm -hmm. or you can go with depth and start primary coverage yourself. Um, I think we'd like to see a scenario where we do a little bit of both, right? So one of, the, one of the asks that we get a lot from readers is local news, and that's not something that we're positioned to do right now, but potentially partnering with some of the larger news syndicates that do deliver on local news and offering a similar service, right? Like imagine a world where I live in Seattle, um, I wanna know what's going, in, going on in Seattle every day or three times a week or whatever, and I want a simple text message, like it can be even more powerful at the local level. Um, so that's one example of kind of moving horizontally. Another is to go subject specific, right? So think through sports or marketing or business or finance or politics, whatever it is. Um, and those would all be kind of horizontal expansions. International is another one. The other piece is because of the way that we cover the news and because of the content that we develop and the system that we've developed, uh, we believe that we're also really well positioned to potentially explore the depth kind of side of things as well, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that we're ever going to be producing nearly as much con content as the Times. But what that could mean is once a week we publish a more in-depth piece outlining something that's super controversial or really hard to understand in a really factual, straightforward way. So over the course of the next, call it 12, 18, 36 months, I think you'll see us do a little bit of both. I think we will continue to expand horizontally. Our, you know, our primary goal will continue to be delivering the news to as many people as possible. And that'll be the five to most important stories of the day. But as we expand and as we expand our team, I think there's also room to add mm -hmm. more depth, take that factual approach and apply it in very specific circumstances. So I think that's where we're going to go. And the other piece is new products, right? We get a lot of requests for voice. Yeah. Uh, we don't really get that many requests for app. I think people are kind of tired of news apps. 
Yeah. Um, there are lots of emerging channels as well, right? Instagram TV and TikTok, if it's still around, and Snap, and there's a lot of different places that people consume content. So I realize that's a very broad answer, but in order to deliver on the mission that we hope to accomplish, we have to execute across a pretty broad spectrum of areas, and that's what we anticipate doing. No, that I think I keep saying I think that makes total sense, but you're making a lot of sense to me. It's probably because we. I have, a, I have a very similar vision of what I wish the news would be like in my head. I mean, I'll, I'll trade you one. My co-founder will probably kill me because we really haven't discussed this one either. But I, I've, I've really been wanting a podcast on the network. Uh, it was What was the name in my head? The Straight Story, in which you would look at a very controversial news story. And the podcast episode is just an hour, really giving you the timeline without the unnecessary fluff and, you know, polemicizing. But, okay. A famous axiom from this uh, media theorist I really like, uh, Marshall McLuhan. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he, um, he's got this really famous saying that the medium is the message, right? The, the way that you tell the story, the if, if television, right? If you tell a story on television, the, the very simple act of telling that story on television delivers a sort of message. Or if you're telling a story on radio, that's going to have certain connotations or in print, right? What, how does delivering the news via email or text how does that alter the way you approach writing the news? Yeah, I mean, it forces us to be succinct, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's super, super important. It's a lot harder to write in, you know, 200 words than it is in 1,000 words on a subject that is complex. But the issue is, you know, myself very much included, folks don't really have the time or attention span to spend three hours understanding a story, right? Really going in depth on U.S.-China trade relations, really going in depth on India-China border dispute or mm -hmm. presidential tax returns or anything that's happening right now, right? So while I would love a world where we could publish 30 pages of journalism every day and everybody would read every word, that's just not the world we live in, and, and it doesn't need to be. Um, so instead, I think what those mediums allow us to do and what those mediums signal is easy, minimal, succinct, um, and you know, a lot of our advertising copy says kind of in, few, in as few words as possible. So if I'm sending you a text message and I'm telling you that that's going to help you be informed for the day, the implication there, the medium being the message is I'm going to help you feel informed today in a way that is super, super easy and fast. There's yeah. never a day you won't feel informed because it takes you two minutes to read the text and feel informed to know the relevant context. Same thing goes for email, but brevity is among the most important things that we do. And email and text both imply brevity. And look, is voice going to be the exact same thing? Maybe, maybe not in the future. Um, you know, we get a lot of asks for, can I literally just get a voice version of the email or the text? Um, so we're actively exploring that. But um, I like that the medium is the message. And I think it's important that people know two things. One, they can stay informed in a really easy to consume way. Minimal, clean, easy, refreshing. Um, but two is that they always have access to more detail. So we yeah. will always have access to more depth a link with you know the best possible source, the primary source, whenever possible. Mm -hmm. um, we want to give people both because what we don't want to do is be restrictive. We don't want to yeah. say you can only read the new paper. What we want to say is you should start with the new paper. You'll know it's easy. You always have that option. And if you want to go deeper, here's your avenue to do so. Yeah, I always dug that I had the ability to like click on the the keyword that's linked and takes me to the article or like you said, the primary source, that's right. very helpful. And it's also helpful when you do the, when you say more context and you, you know, give a little, cause it helps. I'm like, well, what about this? And I'm like, Oh wait, no, they tell me exactly what, so yeah. it's uh, it's, it's terrific. It's, um, 
it reminds me of give me a little bit of rope on this one i was watching the uh a netflix series castlevania right and it's an animated series my girlfriend and i are watching it and every time we would ask a question about two seconds later the character would ask another character that exact same question and i wouldn't have noticed it but it happened about 25 times throughout the show they asked every single question i'm like this is fantastic you guys basically do that with the news every time I'm like where's the context oh more context right or i wish i could really link to this you link to it and it's it's really helpful but yeah the um the, the reason I, I wanted to bring up the, the medium is the message of the Marshall McLuhan thing is precisely what you said. It's the, the brevity of, of an email or a text. And it gives me it, the, the message it gives me is we don't have time to feed you bullshit because we have to be succinct to fit this in a text message because you don't want a text chain that, you know, you have to keep scrolling through. Exactly. So it I really like that the idea that it has to be succinct. And I think that honestly allays a lot of my fears about sensationalism or about a really you know deep bias you just simply don't have enough print space to do it right so again i'm going to ask you for a little bit of rope and we're going to wrap this one up soon i want to keep this one a little bit shorter than an hour because i think uh, symbolically it's going to show a relation to the new pay we're going to be succinct we'll give you the one-two punch but not long ago and of course stop me if you've heard this please don't feel like you're rude if you interrupt me i encourage it I was reading about the um, the Rohingya crisis, which has been going on for quite a few years now in Myanmar, and uh, there was an anecdote in one of the documentaries I was watching. I think it was a Vice documentary or something. You know, they're the, the the paragons of virtue when it comes to doing overseas reporting. And I love my man Hunter S. Thompson, and anything based in Gonzo journalism is just my kind of bag. But anyway, there was an anecdote in the story about the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar about internet and phone service. And it was something like, as of 2017, 90% of people in Myanmar had access to a phone with, with the internet service. And, and this was significant because they really point out in 2014, it was like 17 to 18%, so an astronomical increase in access. However, what really struck me was that of those phone and internet users, Facebook was the primary site they went to, right? And, and that's where people got their news. That's where I don't want to, I think it was like 85% of that 90% of the people got their news from Facebook, which is just basically most of Myanmar. And and that's where the problem really started, right? There was a lot of um, just out and out lies and misinformation about the Rohingya. People reporting rapes that never happened or crimes that never occurred. And it really whipped up a crowd of people into a mob and people died because of it. And that was quite a tangent, sorry. But what do you see as the role of social media in the news landscape? Do you view it as a net positive? Because it's like this democratization of media, right? People can get out there and share you the story directly. You can get a video from, I mean, this is how I really stayed informed when it came to a lot of the protests going on over the past couple of weeks. I was able to actually see the videos, you know, that were, and it helps that I, I live in DC, well, near just outside DC, so you can, you can get a feel for what's really going on. But what, what do you see? the role of social media as a net positive, a net negative in terms of people accessing content in succinct news. Take the succinct part out. I just want the, yeah. it's a loaded question. I know. What an interesting question. I kind of put you on this on the, on the spot there. Like this is a, this is a question that a lot of people much smarter than I are trying to answer right mm -hmm. now. Right. Facebook that, just that's had a whole career. Yeah. Facebook just had their civil rights audit come out. Um, you're seeing an enormous amount of scrutiny to the way that information is transmitted. Uh, I don't think any of these social media platforms yet have cracked the nut because it's so, so hard to balance free speech 
uh, free flow of user information and content moderation on a platform with billions of people. So the the first thing I would say is it's hard. I don't have a great answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I would tell you as Michael, not as co-founder of the new paper, that I think I think when when it comes to very specifically news consumption, I think social media is net negative. And the reason for that is social media has in many ways replaced the first touch of news um, that used to be opening up the New York Times or going to the wallstreetjournal.com. And the result of that is that you have, or it's, or it's Google News, or it's Apple News. And then the result of that is that you have algorithmically curated news, which is incentivized to drive clicks. Mm -hmm. And the clicks oftentimes are driven by sensational clickbait headlines, not necessarily factual news. And I think social media has created, has helped perpetuate this incentive structure within the broader media landscape mm -hmm. that incentivizes clickbait sensational news and that has in many ways polarized the way that people get their information. The other piece is on that point of polarization, Facebook is very much an echo chamber, right? Yeah. So if I something like if I'm scrolling through my feed, chances are a lot of what I'm going to see is things that I agree with because that's what I click on. Um, I think that that has polarized our society maybe more than any single politician or ruling. And I think there's a tremendous responsibility there um, to, to if you're if you're going to deliver information uh, and you are that first touch of news for folks, then you have a responsibility to deliver that in a responsible and factual way. Now, look, I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg ever thought he would be in this position yeah. where Facebook, the platform he created, was the place that people get news. It's kind of evolved to become this platform. So I'm not faulting them for issues of the past. What I am saying is that as we stand here with 2020 hindsight, knowing everything we know, mm -hmm. I do think that social media has been net negative specifically for news consumption because it's polarized the way that folks view the world and it's incentivized the wrong type of behavior in terms of news consumption. Yeah. 50 years ago, the news was straightforward and factual. The new paper wouldn't have existed. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to today, and it has to, because your alternative is getting your facts from Facebook or a different algorithm, algorithmically curated news source. Um, and that news source has just completely morphed the way that media reports. Um, so I kind of say that with a heavy heart because it's a really hard challenge to solve. Yeah. And I think might be the single most important thing to solve right now in our society. I think just the way that people get information and just the way that people start their day with a common set of facts um, or lack thereof is the single biggest threat to our society mm -hmm. and the most important problem to solve. Because we can't make any progress until we're working on a common set of facts. And my social media feed is going to deliver a fundamentally different set of information, not different stories, different information than somebody in a different part of the country. And that is just not okay. So yeah. I think net negative, I think social media also has done a lot of good for the world. Mm -hmm. I think they are trying to work on these issues. I'm not faulting them for the past because this is yeah. a relatively recent problem. And I don't think that these platforms ever thought they would be here. Um, it's a problem that's never happened before. We've never had the technology for this to be a problem. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be focused on solving it. So no, I, I totally agree. that social media companies figure out a way to solve this. Um, I would view that as being, you know, an extension of what we do. So I, I, I want to stay optimistic. I want to stay hopeful, but I do think it's a major issue over the past few years. Um, and I'm glad that folks like yourself are asking the question. 
Yeah, no, I I typically hate when news companies take sound bites out, but that was a hell of a sound bite, man. Fantastic. That was a that was a great answer. I'm listening to it. I'm like, this is a this is one hell of an answer. I do have to. No, but I I think it's uh I think you really hit the hit the nail on the head there because F- Facebook, for example, allows me to lock myself in an echo chamber. Right? If I get on, I don't know, even some news sites that I consider to be the most biased, they they still are public news sites, some of the larger things. And there, there's a level of scrutiny there. You can't just go make shit up. But I can get on a Facebook group that's locked to the thousand people that are in there. It's a free-for-all. You can say whatever you want, and you'll be backed up with it because you have your thousand other people who think exactly like you do because they answered the questions to get in the locked group or whatnot. So it creates this echo chamber. And then the second point that you brought up with the the weighing free speech and whatnot is I'm currently researching for the next like narrative episode for dirty history which is going to be focused on like 90 zine culture and and uh transgressive literature and the idea was when you take away the gatekeepers of media and you allow people to just write whatever they want and get it in front of an audience and they have a platform typically more information and more content and more opinion could be a good thing because we have more voices it's a more democratized way of doing media but without the gatekeepers who are doing the editing and who are looking for the facts, we allow people to make truly false or transgressive stuff that is hurtful and very hateful. And then the question arises, is that the price we have to pay to allow a free media landscape, to allow a democratization of media? Do we have to accept that there will be this fringe group that will always be saying crazy shit because they're allowed to, because we want people to be able to post what they want. But it's, it's, it's a very, it's a question I don't have an answer to. And I never claim to have an answer to, I never will claim to have an answer to. I always just say, yeah, it's complicated. Nor do I. And I think it's like, it's a fascinating thought experiment to think about your question, but more broadly, like is social media net positive or net negative? Mm -hmm. And I don't, have, I don't really have a good answer for that because there's so much good that comes out of the free flow of information. Like I think yeah. about my nieces and nephews and um, the access that they have to information. Like there's just so much good that has come of people being connected um, that it's really challenging to say, but like these are the problems of today. And I think that these, when we look back um, years and folks are reading history books, I think that they're going to be reading about this exact conversation. They're going to be thinking and reading about the rise of social media, the impact on society, and how and what decisions you make, and the ultimate impact. So we are, for, you know, look, it's 20, we're living through history on a million different fronts. We've got a pandemic, we've got, um, you know, uh, protests over inequality, we've got killer hornets, and we've got, you know, potentially World War Three and Kobe, and it's just like, Tiger King, I don't know. There's like a million things that have happened this year, and it's crazy. Um, so we are living through history in so many different ways, but I think at the macro level, the biggest thing that we are struggling with right now mm-hmm. is exactly the question you just asked. And I'm I'm curious, I'm a you know, a, a consumer of information on this topic, um, and and certainly closely watch it, but I think about this for my own children, for my mm-hmm. children's children, you know, I, I think it's the most important question that we need to answer. Um and I think that it is going to be, yeah, just just the most important. I feel like again, but just the most important question that we can answer for society. No, I, I I I totally agree. And with that, I think it would actually be fitting to say, if you're listening to the show, wherever you're listening, 
put it in the comment section. What's the price for open access of information? Because obviously we haven't come to a conclusion. I don't think we will, but maybe if we put the collective mind of the internet together, they can come up with something. They always seem to. <laughs> hey, I appreciate you coming on. It was a great conversation. Our pleasure.